0: Hello! Welcome to the 9 to 5 episode of Slate Money Goes to the Movies. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. I am also here with Louise Rogue of HuffPost. Louise, introduce yourself.
1: So my name is Louise Rogue. I am the executive editor for International for HuffPost. We just got sold to BuzzFeed, which is very exciting. So it's going to be... Buzz post or I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm very excited. That's why I'm here.
0: So you are a big muckety muck in the big corner office. Not that anyone has corner offices these days, but you would if Buzz Post or Hufffeed or whatever it's going to be called had a corner office. And we are going to be watching Nine to Five, which is all about how difficult your life was, I guess, in getting to this place. Is that right?
1: Mm, I would say I mostly have female bosses, so it's been fairly smooth and steady
0: <laughs> so we are going to watch the great 1980 movie 95, to five which i'm, I'm just going to say the great 1980 dolly parton vehicle 95, to 5, because i am the world's biggest dolly parton fan we are going to judge it we're going to say whether we like it or not and all of that is coming up on slate money goes to the movies So let's jump right in with nine to five. Louise, where were you? What country were you in? And how old were you when you first saw this movie?
1: Okay, so I didn't see it in 1980 when it came out. Although in 1980, I would have been in Denmark. I would have been seven and just starting school. I think it was some years later than that, but I was young. I was like, not even a teenager.
0: And for a prepubescent Dane what did you think of it back then what was this amazing world that you were seeing on the screen
1: well i think two things i think it was like a vision of america an american sort of corporate culture and office culture that i was interested in and and mystified by i think as a dane and then i think i was sort of a proto-feminist when i was like 10 and you know i think my, my dad always said oh well like if women are as good as men Name me a female Beethoven or somebody like, and like all these sort of, un- and like when you're a kid, you know, you can't talk about structural inequality or or, <laughs> or things like that. But it would just like bug me so much. So I was a proto-feminist and would argue with my dad. And I think it sort of appealed to my sense of feminism and revolution, I think. Like all children are probably revolutionaries in some ways. And it is a kind of a revolutionary for its time, like quite a revolutionary movie.
0: Anna, do you think it's still a revolutionary movie?
1: I would say
3: yes and no. I think in some ways it seems like what the women are asking for isn't that much, right? But then almost none of it has actually occurred <laughs> this many years later. So I think in that way, it still still kind of is. And honestly, the sad thing is also that to have a movie where you have three female leads and it isn't about romance and it's about their relationship with work, I think is still something you really don't see that frequently.
0: It certainly passes the Bechdel test, right?
3: (laughs) It crushes the Bechdel
0: test. It crushes the Bechdel test. There are maybe like one or two vague supporting roles for the menfolk who are romantically attached to them, but not so you'd notice. And you're right, it's absolutely astonishing how 40 years after this movie was made, the issues are still so live and the amount of progress that has been made has been so small and for all that there are parts of the film that feel dated and you're like well that wouldn't be the case i mean you don't have typing pools anymore but like the technological progress that we've seen has been much greater than the sort of structural progress would you agree with that louise
1: Oh, totally. I mean, I think, like, obviously the Xerox machine is, like, this amazing wonder that fills, like, an entire room.
0: I'm so jealous of that Xerox machine. It's such an amazing machine.
1: It's so amazing. And, obviously, like, phones, like, what you can do with your camera on your phone and, like, email, like, all the obvious things, like, technological progress has been much swifter than anything around equality. I mean, I think one of the funniest jokes of the movie is this kind of, you know, glint in the eye, they have about equal pay towards the end, when, like, Frank Hart's boss comes in and says, Oh, we love all these things you've done. You've transformed the workplace. This is great. Like, childcare, wonderful. We're keeping it all, but equal pay. Like, that, no, that's a step too far. Right. And, and it's sort of a joke. Right. And, but, but the truth is, of course, that like we still don't have equal pay. And so it's like, it's a joke that kind of sits, it sat with me a little bit uneasily and watching it again. We transformed it. The cost was minimal. It's cut down on absenteeism, and we had a wonderful time doing
0: it. Well, Frank, I got to give you credit. You really pulled it off here. Uh-huh. That, uh, that equal pay thing, though, thats uh, that's got to go. Hmm? Oh, yes. Sir. Yeah, yeah. It's all right as an incentive, but uh, we don't need to keep on priming the pump. No, sir. I don't, oh. don't think so.
3: All of the things that the head of the company comes and says, oh, these are all great. He says they're great because they increase productivity. So, it's the idea that when it improves the company's bottom line, they were in favor of it. But the thing that didn't, that was the thing they pushed back on.
0: I do think that that is probably the single biggest change that has happened, though, is that in 1980, companies quite explicitly and openly would pay people differently for doing the same job if they were men or women. And it was just, Accepted And they were like, well, women will work for less. And so we'll pay them less. And men, we need to pay more. And I'm not quite sure when that ended. But it was soon after the movie came out, I think.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say that, well, yes, it's definitely true that things in that way have changed. And yes, you you don't have companies openly doing that in the way that they would have in the past. But, you know, there are parts of the movie where they were saying like, oh, well, I'm going to give this promotion to a man because he's a provider. And not to the woman, even though in this case, she actually was also the sole provider. And that is something that I've literally talked about people happening within the last three years.
1: I would totally agree with that. And it's funny because, you know, so this is 1980. The movie comes out in 1980. This is, of course, the year that Reagan gets first nominated at the Republican Convention and later elected. And at the convention in 1980, that's the moment where the GOP actually withdraws its support for the Equal Rights Amendment which both parties had actually been in favor since introduction in 1923. Today, we still don't have the Equal Rights Amendment. So it's just like this sort of through lines to today. I totally agree. Like, I hear of that that kind of discrimination, maybe not daily, and maybe it's not as blatant. But you hear about it quite regularly. I think a lot about in my own career about not being the path of least resistance, because I think it's also still these ideas about women will like be less likely to, I mean, and this is the idea, of course, that they they will be less likely to kind of object or cuss a fuss or anything like that Mm -hmm. if they don't get paid properly. And and so whenever I am in salary negotiations, I always make sure to make a fuss and not be the path of least persistence. Because I think that does happen.
3: I did think that was a funny part of this movie, though, that the women are so aggressive with their boss even before the climax, but even early on, like Dolly Parton pulls a gun on her boss and like just comes in the next day. (laughs) I was like, that's, you probably get fired for that, I imagine.
0: (laughs) So the Dolly Parton character is just magnificent. And as we all know, Dolly Parton is the greatest living American. And I, I think maybe people didn't know that Dolly Parton was the greatest living American back in 1980. And this was part of the introduction of Dolly Parton to, uh, audience that maybe wasn't familiar with country and western music that character again felt revolutionary at the time and i still think feels revolutionary it's very difficult to think of like i don't know how to put it but the very ballsy very smart very beautiful you know sexy and aggressive office worker like how is that not a character that we almost ever see in movies
1: it's funny because like this is of course her debut movie right and Roger Ebert was like oh my god she's like Marilyn Monroe he actually compared her to Marilyn Monroe in that movie and I think she has that sweetness I think the other thing about her character that's interesting is something around class right because mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. just about sex uh, but it's about class like she's up a different world than the other characters and I think she kind of gets ding for that a bit yeah no I agree
0: and, definitely- and overcomes yeah. it yeah
1: I mean, people are
3: ostracizing her partly because they think she's sleeping with the boss, but I think you're right. It's also because she's, you know, perhaps a little too loud. You know, she, she suge- suggests that she's, you know, not from that same class. And even the fact that she obviously is the only character who has this very clear Southern accent. But as you said, is, I mean, I remember when I saw this movie as a little kid and she was by far my favorite thing in the film. You know, she just, you know, because as you said, How can she not be? Right. She's just, there is a sweetness and a toughness and it really jumped out at me because the last movie we watched, Trading Places, the way it depicts women in that film <laughs> and the way it kind of uses women's bodies in that film just then made me think about how this film was using women's bodies, also how they were using their bodies in just such a different way when you had women involved in the process of making the film and in a way that again, I think is still fairly revolutionary.
1: I totally agree. And I think it's so funny because there's like physical comedy around Frank Hart, the horrible sexist boss around his body. Right, right. Like right. The whole kind of setup with him in the harness and it's like a sex yes, game yeah. and maybe not. And he's flying around. And, and like that, that, those were actually the scenes that made me laugh the hardest. He just <laughs> like looks so ridiculous. And it's also rare that you see men's bodies being ridiculed in that way or at least by women, right? I
3: also think the scene where she's fantasizing about what she would do to him and the roles are changed and she's just describing his body in this really, you know, gross way in the way that, you know, a stereotypical male boss might do to his female employee. And it's, I found it so uncomfortable to watch. You realize how diminished he was as a person when someone was speaking to him in that way. And I think because people aren't used to seeing men in that way, and they are used to seeing women in that way, that when you put a man in that role, it just highlights just how awful that is.
2: Hold it. Just hold it right there.
0: Something wrong?
2: No, no, nothing's wrong. I just want to check your bod. Turn around for a second. Oh. oh you got a nice ass frame. But you know you ought to get your pants cut a little tighter. You need to bring them up just a little in the crotch. I mean, you got a nice package. You might as well show it off. Oh
1: it's funny because i I went back and i looked at the 1980 uh the review contemporaneous review in the new york times by a guy who shall remain unnamed and he called it militant like he he describes the movie's militancy
0: in a sort of pejorative way
1: oh yeah and he was like yeah this is an attractive team they make an attractive team miss tomlin yeah she's pretty attractive like you know miss miss parton she's attractive but you know the best performance of course was by the guy who played frank hart (laughs) <laughs> right, like these women and like and like their their flag waving feminism, which he also likened to like communism and like things <laughs> like that, like they paled, you know, next to the comedic genius of of this guy. Wow. It's actually like really amazing going back and reading that review from 1980.
3: When this film was originally imagined, it was a much, much darker story. It was women who actually tried to kill their boss. And and then when they talked about it, they said, No, we can't put women in that role because they won't be sympathetic enough. So it's interesting that even in this, which is a very, I mean, it is a very light kind of bubblegum movie in a lot of ways, but I think in a way that that's actually very useful because I think for a lot of people probably at that time, this made this message a little bit more digestible, maybe to an audience who wouldn't have been as apt to see a film if it were say a drama around the same themes.
1: I think that's
0: totally right. It did turn out to be the the second biggest grossing movie of 1980. And there were some big grossing movies that year. It was hugely popular in a way that uh, militant screed against sexism in the workplace would never be. I obviously give all the credit to Dolly Parton and especially to her amazing theme song.
3: It really is wonderful.
0: (laughs) But there is more to it than just that. Louise, do you think that it was popular despite its militants or because of it? Or do you think it's not actually militant at all?
1: I don't think I would describe it as militant at all. I think, you know, going back to what Anna was saying about choosing to to kind of put the movie forward in this way, I mean, that was a very deliberate choice by Jane Fonda, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, it was her idea to do the movie, and they chose to make it, like, give it a lighter comedic touch rather than make it more of a screed or, like, make it serious because they wanted that broad popular appeal, which, you know, obviously they succeeded, given... It did really bank at the box office. I mean, I I wonder, like, what was the other? Was the Empire Strikes Back, was that the other?
0: That Yeah, it was second only to the Empire Strikes Back. Oh, my
1: God. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. Amazing. No, I, I don't think it's militant at all. I felt a little sad watching it, you know, the other night, I think because of the lack of progress, right? Like, I guess what it tried to put forward was, like, a mild view of what was possible in the workplace. And so many years later, we haven't even gotten close to any of those things. Like, we don't have on-site childcare or equal pay.
0: So what struck me when I saw the final scenes of the transformed office with lots of like oranges and bright colors and soft furnishings and the crash down the hallway was, oh my God, this is a Silicon Valley startup. Like this was the weird vision that has been the kind of, you can more or less just like live in this place and feel at home and be yourself and bring your full self to work. And the semiotics of dot-com offices with their foosball tables and whatnot, you know, I feel like on some level they owe something to 9 to 5.
3: One of the things I thought was really interesting about the movie, and this kind of feeds into that, is how obviously from the title of the movie, time is so important in the film and people having control over their own time in the idea that a lot of what they want is this idea that you can start when you want and leave when you want. One of the first things that happens is the, you know, the punching clock goes away. And yeah, I mean, I think that what Silicon Valley has offered and I think also what maybe, you know, we're seeing more now because of remote working is, you know, on the one hand this idea that people now have a little bit more control over their own time in theory, they're not always having to work 9 to 5. However, <laughs> what that's often meant in Silicon Valley and as I'm sure many people during the pandemic is working basically all the time and still not necessarily having as much control over your own time as you would like.
1: I totally agree with that. And it, it was one of the things that struck me as so I was like nine to five. I wish. <laughs> exactly, <right>? like, yeah. <laughs> who I don't know anybody who works nine to five. And then of course, that's like also something that comes out of Silicon Valley because it's like the way in which like phones and uh, smartphones have like destroyed any kind of separation between Work and play. Like like now it's all work in some ways. You're always, I mean, you always carry your bus in your pocket. For me, there was like certainly a wistfulness to that. Like the time, like you stamp in and you stamp out. Oh my God, I would love to kind of (laughs) stamp out and be done, you know?
2: Apple card is the perfect cash back
3: rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you.
0: I want to go back to what you were saying, Louise, about class, because I think that was super insightful. There was a huge transformation in the office. They really managed to change the way that people work. It all happens more or less overnight. It's very revolutionary. They turned out to be amazing managers. But really, it's just Lily Tomlin, right, who turns out to be the amazing manager. And the secretary just keeps on doing what she does as a secretary and the housewife who didn't really know what she was doing turns out to basically decide that what she wants to do is go off and find some other man to shack up with and the class distinctions and the career tracks are all pretty much set in stone from the beginning and don't change that for all that this might have been some kind of militant feminist revolutionary screed it's quite conservative in its own way
1: i think it is and i think It's not just around class, it's also around race, right? Like, the office, with a few exceptions, it remains really white. It's not like there are these huge changes. And I think that certainly pertains to class as well. Like, you know, and maybe it's too much to ask that this film, like, encompass all these different, like, facets. It's not
0: intersectional enough.
1: (laughs) No, but it's also, it's 1980. I mean, like, I think, you know, I was thinking about it today, like, 1980, what was life in 1980? And it's like, well, the obvious things like the Soviet Union was still here. It's like a very different world, right, in so many ways. But it was also like, you know, Ivy Leagues had just just like a decade earlier brought women into, into their classrooms, right? Like Columbia College, like you couldn't be an undergraduate woman until 1983 at Columbia College. Like kind of amazing to think about that now. And, and of course, what happens in the 80s is like there's this huge influx. Well, between the 60s and the 80s, like there's a huge influx of women In the workplace, but also especially in this managerial, on the managerial side.
0: And you're right that 1980 was early on in the feminist revolution, although it was kind of also near the peak. I think one of the things that you learn from, say, watching the Miss America TV show is that there was a huge and powerful and important and mainstream and bipartisan feminist movement first wave feminism in the late 70s which made huge strides and then really kind of unraveled after this movie came out and it took a long time for second wave feminism to come back and this I think really marks that point where women really felt that equality was within their grasp and I feel that if Jane Fonda had tried to make it even five years later she would have been much less optimistic about that.
3: Yeah, I I think that that's right. I do agree with you. I do think that probably that feeling of like even a scene towards the end where they're like in the bathroom talking about how much change has occurred and they're kind of like, this is only the beginning. And you want to be like, oh, no.
1: the look on his face. I swear I almost felt we sorry for him.
2: We did it. We actually pulled it off and we didn't panic.
1: <laughs> and Tinsworthy loved what we did. Yeah, everything except that part about the money. What are we going to do about that? Hey, we've come this far, haven't we? This is just the beginning. And here's to the beginning. <laughs> I'll drink to
2: that. To the beginning. Yay! Hey.
3: But, but the one thing I would say, and I don't want to do spoilers, but it did also make me think of what we'll later see in Working Girl. Where you a have a woman who is like at a very very high level, and you also have that rise in class that, as you said, you didn't see in this one, but obviously that was later.
1: Can I say also like one thing that struck me is like so of course it resonated a lot also with Me Too and all that, but especially when you think about Me Too in a a contemporary context, what I have found really interesting is like Me Too in this country in America has been very much around like behavior in the workplace, and in the UK. That conversation has much more focused on pay and much less on like behaviors or sexual advances or any kind of abusive behavior in that way and much more on like equal pay. And I think that's super interesting. And I kinda wanna turn it around and ask, Felix, given your background and your dual nationality, what do you think that accounts for?
0: The difference between the US and the UK?
1: In the conversation around Me Too and, and what it means to have an equitable workplace.
0: I come from a family and we we touched on this in the episode with my cousin Thomas Harding about the Salmon family, which really did like make huge, great strides in terms of employing women. And one of the reasons why we were so successful is because we were very good at employing women, including, it should be noted, Margaret Thatcher at one point. But we also very explicitly paid them 70% of what we paid men. And that was just you know, it was our comparative advantage. We get all of the quality for 70% of the cost. Boom, great. Well, it's not (laughs) to love. So I, I totally understand that the pay thing is a very live issue in the UK. And I also understand as someone who grew up in the UK, that women, you know, they can be extremely sexually assertive and aggressive. And I'm not saying there's no sexual harassment, There certainly is, but I'm not surprised that many of them, especially the ones in positions of power in the media and in office situations, will be like, what I care about is getting paid. And if some guy tries it on with me, he'll regret it. And in terms of priorities, they're like, I have enough sort of sexual confidence to be able to tell people to fuck off if I want to it's the pub culture you know it's the drinking culture it's the i'm not going to say it's a more sexually equal culture but i do think that gender roles are a little bit more maybe a little bit more old-fashioned or like well-defined in the u.s
1: i kind of also wonder if it's like misbehavior at the office is there's a greater tolerance for that
0: and out of the office exactly like the whole institution of the entire office basically just pouring out of the office a six o'clock and going straight into the pub and everyone getting shitfaced and then leaving at 10 or 11 o'clock and like sleeping with each other is so ingrained in UK workforces that it becomes really hard to say well that was inappropriate because literally everyone does something inappropriate literally every day
1: So like Jeffrey Toobin would have gotten like a slap on the back and like <laughs> you know
0: yeah I think it would have been hard to make this movie in the UK. And I don't think the UK had the same kind of like first wave feminism that the US did. I think we kind of piggybacked a lot on the Americans and imported their books.
3: I think it's second wave. I think the first Is wave this was second like wave jets And then I think the second wave was like the 70s. And then the third I can't wave count. was. I, I could be wrong. About I'm that. very bad at counting.
0: <laughs> I apologize to any second wave feminists for calling you first wave feminists <laughs> and that, like, implying that you might have been alive in 1920 when women got the vote.
3: Hello, I'm Immy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
0: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camped here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe
3: and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
0: So the choice of comedy, we understand that is is basically because it's a very sweet honey, which makes the medicine go down. Or again, I just want to like, Push you on this one, Louise. Are you saying there is like some real medicine in there, or no, it's just like honey all the way through?
1: No, I, I think it's like, you know, look, it's stated in a lot of ways, right? Like, and it has like, there's like a lot of hullabaloo around, like, oh, they smoke some pot, and then they have like this like fantasy things and like that weird, really funny, weird fantasy sequence. That has like Disney characters and the whole thing is just like really bizarre. But anyway, like that all feels a little bit dated as a as a device. And like there's certain things that feel a little bit dated, but it still holds up. You know, I don't think it's militant, but I still think it holds up. Like another part of this film I really like is the solidarity. And I I don't this is a word is a very unfashionable word. I think sadly so, because we need more solidarity. And one of the reasons why I really like this movie is about three women coming together and finding each other, right? Like the man. Frank Hart is trying to keep them apart in various ways, right? By insinuating that he's sleeping with Dora Lee, the Dolly Parton character, and like in other ways, like trying to, because he's like, it's a classic kind of divide and and rule. And they find each other despite this. And then they have this great solidarity and they conquer together. Like they couldn't have done it by themselves and they do it together in like weird and funny and fanciful ways.
3: Yeah, and I think that, especially in the terms of the history of American film, because I feel like a lot of American film, when you had a number of women there was often cattiness between the women. And I do think this film, yeah, it's just a wonderful example of this, you know, going back to that idea of the crushing the Bechdel test where they like each other, they're in it together, you know, they're not attacking each other.
0: There is one evil woman, baddie, spy. Oh,
3: yes. Roz? Roz? Was that was that her name?
0: Roz. And then at the end, finally, there is this question which I have for you, which is the... Little plot twist at the end where Frank Hart gets a bunch of undeserved credit for transforming the productivity of his department and then gets rewarded with a posting to Brazil, which is supposed to be some terrible place where he winds up getting eaten. They, they
3: describe Brazil as though, like, all of Brazil is just Amazonian jungle. <laughs> that was a problematic part of the film, I would say
0: yeah exactly it was like what it was quite racist in its own way but (laughs) also just even looking past the racism of that as a plot device my question is like what is going on there is the chairman sort of winking to the audience and saying like i know that you're not actually responsible for this and i'm going to kick you out of the company to some far-flung place because i don't respect you or is it actually him trying to give this guy a promotion
1: i wonder i mean i wonder if it's not actually uh, a question of them setting up their joke their final joke which is of course he gets kidnapped by amazonians Right, <laughs> <laughs> <I mean, laughs> right, i don't know and also it could be as you say like you know the honey that makes the medicine go down like you know you can't kill the boss that was too transgressive you have to get rid of him somehow he can't die that would also put a damper on things so like this is a way to get him out. you know yeah, that Away makes sense. From, from the plot.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think it was just kind of partly also you had a very convoluted plot and you <laughs> needed some way to be able to wrap it up. And having this Colonel Sanders figure come in and this Deus Ex Machina, I feel like uh it was maybe not the most satisfying ending, but it I guess worked.
0: No, I mean it was a gloriously operatic. I mean, that plot would not be out of place in an opera. It's so completely ludicrous on so many levels, to the point at which the dream sequence is like, oh yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. Because like none of the plot <laughs> makes any sense. And it's fine. And that's one of the great things about comedy, I think, is that in comedy you can get away with ludicrous plots and no one really cares very much. In fact, they love it. It's, it makes it better. And you need a certain amount of boldness to be able to write something that crazy but it's fun if you do and then that allows you to sort of shoehorn in everything else that you want to shoehorn in there
1: and i think the other thing about the comedy and why it works so well is like exactly because it's those three women you know when they were originally when fonda dreamt up the movie and they i forget her name but the original screenwriter was a woman and like they set out to cast the movie these were the people that they wanted they had like secondary choices but like this was the cast they wanted and i just think it's such a beautiful like they work so well together like Mm -hmm. The the way that they sort of, like, play off each other and the comedic timing and stuff like that and those characters. The way that Dora Lee kind of plays off the Jane Fonda character. Jane Fonda as this, like, very, I mean, against type, mousy.
0: I know. I mean, like, the least glamorous Jane Fonda we have ever seen or will ever see. You could bump into her in the street, like, right now and she would be infinitely more glamorous than that character.
1: But Totally, in her little, like, pillbox hat in the beginning. And then, of course, Lou Tomlin, who is just, like, delightful throughout it all. Like, mm-hmm. just like a true comedic genius, I think. But they just work so well together.
3: Yeah, no, I agree. Last comment that I had looked up on this film that I thought maybe speaks to this idea of this film allowing people to maybe consider this message who wouldn't normally. Apparently, Ronald Reagan actually re- liked the movie. He has this, I guess, like a journal where he wrote about every movie he saw and he was like, oh, this you know, this was a lot of fun. He was like, I just didn't like that scene with the marijuana. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I do think it was bold. You know, it's not a stoner movie. And how many movies do you have, like, nice middle-class women smoking marijuana and suffering no consequences for doing so mm-hmm. that aren't, you know, Cheech and Chong? It is kind of, it's still transgressive a little bit, even now.
1: But I also think it's like, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about this moment in history. And, and you made the point vis-a-vis feminism But I also think it's like culturally, it's a moment where we're about to go into like a really regressive period, right? Like Reagan is about to come into power. There's going to be the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Culturally, we're going to take so many steps back, in my view, in the ensuing years. It's like 1980 is like that last hurrah before things kind of go really dark again.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the movie saw itself as like on the vanguard of some great teleological progress towards equality and i'm sure that none of the filmmakers would have foreseen the reagan revolution the sort of anti-feminism of thatcher and the retrograde societal moves that i mean dear god this is 2020 we can see them just by looking out the window on which note... Very happy way to end the <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the perfect place to end it. Like, you know, here we are, 40 years later, no progress, yay.
1: <laughs> Louise Rogue,
0: thank you for um, coming on this show, and would you recommend this movie? Do you think people should go out and see it?
1: Oh, totally, totally. Watch it with your boss, with your colleagues. <laughs> like, watch it at a Zoom party or however you do it. But, like, yeah, definitely. Anna? Yeah, agree. It's so much fun. Uh,
0: I'm, like... <sighs> I think as a movie, I was slow to come around to it. The first hour or so was so kind of formulaic and dumb. I was like, come on, this is stupid. But like, you can't not love it, especially not with Dolly Parton. And it charmed even me. So yes, I think we're going to get three out of three recommendations for nine to five. Thank you for listening to Sleep Money Goes to the Movies. We will be back next week with the one and only Wall Street Josh Brown will be with us from Rithulp's Capital Management.
2: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.